Uh, let's say a word of prayer before we begin uh, the message. Uh, Father, thank you for this chance that we can come together and, <clears throat> and worship in your house. Uh, we thank you for all the good gifts that you have given us. We pray now that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Uh, please give us understanding. Please uh, uh, change our lives uh, to reflect who you are in a more rich way. We pray now that you would bless us in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, as I uh, mentioned earlier uh, in the service, uh, I'm going to be uh, beginning a, a three-part series on Christian virtues, uh, faith, hope, and love. And I figured I would start out by asking you a question. Uh, does anyone know which one of these is the most important, faith, hope, or love? Yeah, just go ahead and shout it out. Love, love. yeah, good. So, okay, now I'm like a math teacher, I'm going to make you prove it. Where, where, where do you get that from? Uh, Okay, so I've heard two answers, and I think both of them are, are right. There's more than one way to skin a cat, they say. Sorry for all you cat lovers. So yeah, one of those is 1 Corinthians uh, 13, when Paul says that love is the greatest of these three. Uh, he says, faith, hope, and love uh, abide, but you know, love is, uh, is eternal. But we also see this in the words of Jesus. I heard somebody else say, say Jesus. Um, well, Jesus is summarizing the law. He says, what's the greatest commandment? Uh, the greatest commandment is to, to love God, and the second is like it. You're supposed to love other people. So we can say, well, yeah, love is the greatest of these Christian virtues. But you can't really have one of these virtues without the other. It's not like you can say, oh, well, I have love, I'm okay, I don't need hope, and I don't need faith. No, all three of these work together, and in a way they are inseparable. And we typically think of these three, faith, hope, and love, in the following ways. We say that faith is the foundational Christian virtue. This is what gets us into the Christian life. This is what we reaffirm every time we come to church. We say that hope is the sustaining virtue. That is what gets us through the Christian life and especially the difficult times. And we say that love is the climactic virtue because love will never end. Heaven is a world of love and there will be no need for faith and hope. Because in heaven, we will have received what we have placed our faith in and what we have hoped for. So as we begin this series, we're going to start with the foundational virtue of faith and then move to hope and love. Now, there are several ways of thinking about faith, and we're going to explore two different ways of, of uh, viewing faith. The first is to think about the Christian faith, that thing that we have all gathered together today because we believe it is something that sits above us and outside of us that we come together and say, yes, that is what I believe. So we're going to explore the objective Christian faith. But we're also going to ex explore the personal expression of that faith. We're all very unique. We're all very different. We all believe the same thing. But when we go out into the world, well, we express that in different ways. So we're going to look at these two, the overall Christian faith and the way that we live the faith in our regular lives. So first, let's look at the objective faith. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were at your child's baseball game or at a barbecue with your neighbors, and someone walks up to you and asks, hey, I heard that you're a Christian. What is the Christian faith all about? And about that time, there's a big lull in the conversation and in the ball game, and all the eyes turn and look at you. What are you going to say? Would it be easy for you to answer or terrifying? What would you do? Would you take out your Bible and start reading? 
After all, the Bible is the word of God, but it's pretty long. The hot dogs are going to get cold, or get, get cold and the uh, baseball game is going to finish all nine innings. So how would you summarize the Christian faith? Well, things like the Nicene Creed, which we have in our bulletin, is a helpful tool to help us summarize the Christian faith. So go ahead and take out your bulletins again, and we're going to refer to this uh, for a few moments. Before we jump into the Nicene Creed, I want to draw your attention to to two other creeds. There's three uh, creeds that the Western Church affirms, saying that these are, in fact, uh, creeds that we refer to for education, for our spiritual lives of prayer, and for uh, worship. Uh, The first creed uh, that we're probably most familiar with is the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The last song that we sung called This I Believe, the uh, additional title or like a a secondary title is called The Creed. And it's based on the Apostles' Creed. And to make it confusing, the Apostles didn't write it. So uh, it wasn't written by the Apostles, but there's 12 points in the Apostles' Creed. There's 12 Apostles. I think you can see the connection why they call it the Apostles' Creed. And it summarizes the faith. I'm trying to get the kids to memorize that in Kids Club, so parents, you can help me out and reinforce that at home. Well, the Apostles' Creed is the shortest and the most popular. The longest and the most obscure is called the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is great. It's uh, certainly worth reading and meditating upon, but it's a little bit longer. And come on, who can spell the word Athanasian? So it's not easy to do a Google search to find the Athanasian Creed. Ah, but the Nicene Creed that we have in front of us, this is the creed par excellence. Uh, To understand the creed, you have to understand a little bit of the historical context in which it was written. In the early 4th century, Christianity became a legalized religion. Uh, Today, we're arguing about legalizing cannabis. Back then, they were legalizing Christianity. And as Christianity became legal, well, there were more and more converts to the faith, But there were also more and more questions, more debates, and more heretical views. So in the year 325, different church bishops and council members and theologians came together to answer these heretical views. And then in 380, so several decades later, about 50 years later, they had to rewrite it. They had to make some updates and have a second draft. So the one that you have in the bulletin is actually a second copy from 381. Now, the two big questions that were addressed at these councils were, first, is Jesus equal in divinity to the Father? There were views saying that he was like God or another God, but not equal to God the Father. So that was one of the big questions that was addressed. A second question that was addressed is, is the Holy Spirit equal to the Father? Is he some emanation from the Father? Is he some angelic figure, or is he equal to the Father? So now let's take a look at the creed with those two questions in mind and see what our ancestors came up with from the 4th century. Well, take a look at the first section. There's kind of three sections. Take a look at the first section. What jumps out at you? Well, we see in the very first line that there is one God. This obviously has its roots in the Old Testament. The most famous place is in Deuteronomy 6, the uh, Shema, which says, The Lord your God, he is one. But we also get glimpses all the way back from Genesis 1. We see that God is the creator or the maker of heaven and earth. But he is the maker of all things. He made everything, whether it is visible, like a rock, a plant, or us. But he made everything that is invisible as well. There's no eternal rival to God. 
He made everything physical. He made everything that is immaterial. He is completely different from everything else. Now, we could keep talking about this for hours, I'm sure, but I want you to notice just one other thing. We say that God is Father. Now, if God is Father, that must mean that he has a child, and in this case, a son. But who is that son? Well, if we jump down to the second section, we see that answer. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. So God is the Father because he has a son, he has a child named Jesus. Now, remember one of the questions that this council was addressing. They were addressing the question, is Jesus equal to the Father? So let's read the next five or six lines and see what it says. Well, it says that Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, meaning before any other creation existed, there he was. He is God from God. He is light from light. He is true God from true God. He is begotten. He's certainly not made because then he'd be a creature, so he's begotten. And he has the same essence as the Father. And through him, all things were made. So is Jesus equal to the Father? Well, we see that he is just as much God as the Father. We see that he is pure light as the Father is pure light. And we also see that he was involved in creation. He made all things. So we must say, yes, he is equal to the Father. But then the creed moves to Jesus, uh, looking at him as a person. It then talks about his actions. It talks about him becoming a human being. And it gives us this reason. Why did he become a human? This is one of the big questions of the time. If God is so transcendent, if he is so great, if he is so much more powerful than us, why in the world would he want to become a human being? It doesn't make sense. So the next line fills us in. It says, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. That's the whole reason why Jesus became a human being, was for our salvation. Then the next part of the creed, it just continues with the gospel. So the gospel is kind of a subset of our faith, but here we see in the creed all the components of the gospel. He became a human being. He was born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, and he was crucified. He died, he suffered, he was buried, but he rose again. And he ascended into glory, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. So there is the gospel from from Jesus' humiliation to his exaltation. And now we kind of have the question, okay, well, 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 now what? We're waiting for his return. What are we supposed to do now? Well, this is where the third section is helpful. It tells us all about the Holy Spirit. And one of the questions about the Holy Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit equal to the Father? Is the Holy Spirit equal to the Son? Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't get nearly as much wording and verbiage as uh, the Son, as Jesus Christ. But look at the fourth line in the third section. It says that with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped. Only God can be worshipped. Thus, they were affirming that the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son and their divinity. And the primary work of the Spirit is to do what? Well, it is all about the church. So the church is connected to the Holy Spirit. That is why we can make the bold proclamation that we are holy, 
Not because any of us are good, but because the Holy Spirit is in us and with us. That is why we can say we are Catholic. Because the wholeness of Christ is here through the power of his Spirit. And that's why we can say we are apostolic, connected to the church fathers, because the same Spirit that Peter and Paul and all the other disciples had, we have as well. The Spirit of Christ. Now, I believe that this is an excellent summary of the faith. But it's still a lot for you to spit out of your mouth at a barbecue or at a ball game. So how could we further summarize this into one brief statement? I believe there's many possibilities, but the way that I would do it is to say that God is creator and redeemer. I believe in that statement we have the essence of our faith. If you think about it, it kind of takes care of the first half of the creed that God creates through his son. And the second half is about his redemption, that Jesus became a human for us, and he redeems us through his work and through the spirit in the church. So God is the creator, and he is the redeemer. That is the objective Christian faith that we all come together and affirm. So now you can impress all of your neighbors at the next barbecue. So now that we have examined the faith, that God is the creator and God is the redeemer, it's time for us to examine our personal faith, or your faith. And I want to throw out a disclaimer. I'm certainly not trying to make anyone doubt their salvation by examining your faith. I kind of grew up in a culture that, you know, made you, you know, feel guilty and you had to pray the sinner's prayer every week. I certainly don't want to do that. I don't want to make you think that uh, you don't have faith. Uh, all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed, a very tiny amount. You don't really need more than that. Uh, the same way that you don't need any more muscles in your body. But the muscles in your body need to be exercised, right? You need to do some pull-ups and push-ups and go for a jog. You need to exercise your muscles to make them better. It's the same way with your faith. You have all the faith that you need, but you need to exercise it. You have to make it greater and greater. You need to become more virtuous and more excellent. So how do we do a self-evaluation of our faith? Well, Scripture is full of excellent examples of those who had faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 gives us a long list of examples. And St. Paul tells us that all of these examples in the Bible are for our benefit, so we can know how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Now, all of these examples in Hebrews 11, they do not convey any type of easy believism, or as Diedrich Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace, just saying the sinner's prayer and moving on. Now, everyone in this chapter exercised their faith in the midst of excruciating difficulties and trials, perhaps like we at RBC are finding ourselves. But all of these people in Hebrews 11, through their faith and through the exercise of their faith, they became little versions of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 mentions people like Noah, who had to build a boat. Everyone around him thought he was weird, and they mocked him through every step of the process. But he persevered in his faith. And through his faith, Noah saved himself and his family. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was seduced by a beautiful woman, but in faith he refused to sin. And then, what did he get for his faith? Well, he was thrown into prison. Some reward, right? But he kept persevering in his faith. And he saved not only himself and not only his family, but an entire nation. He was an image of the one who was to come. 
But Hebrews 11 also considers Abraham and Sarah. They are the grandparents of our faith. If the Nicene Creed is the creed par excellence, well, Abraham and Sarah, they are the examples of faith par excellence. Their lives are constantly referred to throughout Scripture. In faith, they left their home. In faith, they left their family behind. In faith, they left everything that they knew. And in faith, they followed God without knowing exactly where they were going. In faith, they believed that God would give them a child, even when it was biologically impossible. And in faith, they believed that God would raise their child from the dead. In faith, they hoped against all hope. Their faith drastically upset their lives. Yet, they have become an example to all of us. One of my favorite passages of obscure scripture is Isaiah 51, 1-2, where the Lord says through the prophet, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man. And I blessed him and made him many. What is this passage inviting us to do? Well, it's inviting us to consider Abraham and to consider all those who have gone before us and try to emulate their faith. But it's also telling us to expect similar blessings from God, like Abraham received. Abraham, like I said, is mentioned throughout many passages of Scripture, and he's also mentioned in James chapter 2, which was the passage that was read just a few moments ago. Well, Hebrews 11 gives, gives us examples of those who express their faith, but James 2 clarifies how we ought to express our faith. James says that faith is not something that is passive. It's not simply an internal belief, something that cannot be judged by external measurements. On the contrary, James says that true faith can be measured. It's measured by our actions. In fact, our actions must change because of our faith. It's not simply enough to say, oh yeah, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus, but I don't need to change. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to get baptized. Why do I need to take the Lord's Supper? Join a small group? No, no need. I I have faith. I don't need to get up and pray in the morning. I have my own faith. Don't bother me about it. Well, this type of Christian doesn't exist according to James at least not a good Christian. I believe Christians can have that mentality, but it's not what we should be striving towards. James says that true faith is identified by our works. Abraham's faith did not remain alone, but his faith was completed by his works. I believe God's proclamation of Abraham's faith, that was just pointing forward as a prophetic revelation of what he was going to do with his son Isaac. But Abraham is not the only one that is mentioned in James chapter 2. We are told to emulate Rahab the prostitute. Now Rahab is only mentioned five times in the Bible. But two of these times, she is held up as a great example of the faith. So she must have done something right, I would say. Well, what is it? In faith, Rahab risked her life. And in doing so, see, she saved her family 
as well as the people of God. Rahab's story takes place in Joshua 2. If any of you would like to open the scripture and, and check it out with me, we're going to kind of walk through it. Uh, feel free to, you don't, you don't have to. We're not going to look at it in, in great detail. Uh, but I do want you to notice how this chapter plays out and, and take a notice that her actions associated with faith precede her words of faith. Many times we think, oh, if I just believe the right thing, my actions don't need to change. With Rahab, it's kind of the opposite. Her actions change, and then she confesses her faith. And I think this is why James uses her in chapter 2. So take a look at Joshua. At the beginning of Joshua 2, Joshua sends two spies into the land of Canaan, the land that they're about to go invade. Now, this was supposed to be a top-secret mission. Not everybody in Israel knew this. This was limited to just a select few, and particularly to Joshua and the spies. But guess what? These spies are not good spies. They have not been trained by the CIA or the special forces. No, they probably had never been on any secret missions before. They're wearing all the entirely wrong clothing. They're speaking in the wrong dialect, and these guys stick out like a sore thumb. Everyone knows they're spies. Maybe they were just trying to be tourists passing through the land of Canaan, but it was obvious that they were not. Everyone around started talking about them. They were trying to stay away from these people that were the spies, and they were going to the police. They were going to the king's guards, and they were saying, hey, there are spies in the land. Now, we know this because the king finds out almost immediately that the spies are in the land. So Joshua sends the spies into the land in verse 1, and guess what happens in verse 2? The king already knows about it. So these are not good spies. In fact, these spies are idiots. Everybody knows what they're doing there. So what does Rahab do whenever she sees these spies? Well, she invites them into her home. She receives the spies in. And in doing so, she receives the people of God. By receiving God's people, her life got far more complicated The king's men started showing up and knocking on the door. There's armed guards snooping around her place. But Rahab protects God's people. Now, by protecting them, she has committed treason, a crime that is still punishable by death in modern times. So can you imagine what would have happened to Rahab if she was caught conspiring with the enemy? Well, of course, she would be killed, but she would have been made an example of. It would have been humiliating and extremely painful. And it wouldn't have been an example just through Rahab. They probably would have killed her entire family. Her father, her siblings, her nephews and nieces all would have been destroyed. So why would Rahab risk everything for these dopey spies that aren't fooling anyone? Well, that is how the chapter begins. But if we keep reading when we get to verses 8, 9, and 10 of Joshua 2, we see Rahab's actions were an expression of the faith that was inside her heart. Take a look at chapter 10 if anyone is following along. So Rahab is speaking. She says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, how you devoted them to destruction. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, there are two phrases that I just read that I want to pull out of that. Uh, The first is at the end of verse 11. 
Rahab says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, does this remind you of anything from the creed? Well, yes, we believe that God is creator of heaven and earth, that he is outside, that he is above, and that he is beyond. So the first element of our faith that God is creator is affirmed by Rahab. So now let's take a look at a second phrase from verse 10. It's actually the beginning of verse 10. The Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. Now, what is this referring to? Well, it's referring to God's deliverance of his people. He redeems his people out of Egypt. Now, does this remind you of any parts of the creed? Well, yes, we see that God is creator, but we also see that he is redeemer. So the core of our faith was grabbed a hold of by Rahab. In case anyone's confused by the history, Rahab lived thousands of years before the Council of Nicaea took place. Yet her faith in God as creator and her faith in the God who redeems changed her life. She didn't believe in God to get a better job or to have all of her problems taken away. No, things did not get easier for Rahab. In fact, they got more complicated. She risked her life and everything that she loved the most because she believed in the creator and redeemer. Now, I'm sure that somebody is wondering if I'm going to mention Rahab's lie. When the soldiers came to look for the spies, Rahab lied to the soldiers and sent them on a wild goose chase when the spies were actually in her property. So how should we think about Rahab's lie? Was she doing a terrible thing by telling a lie? Well, I can still see the image of one of my uh, teacher's faces whenever I was in middle school, uh, thinking that Rahab had done a horrible thing, that she was breaking the commandments and should not have lied. And uh, this seems to be a very popular view in the commentaries. People think that she just chose the lesser of two evils or that there was some third option. But either way, she was violating God's law. Well, personally, I think there are better explanations to it. From an ethical standpoint, we can chat about at some point privately. But personally, I think focusing on Rahab's lie misunderstands the point of the passage and honestly misunderstands the point of Scripture altogether. There are plenty of ethical dilemmas in Scripture. I mean, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Joshua's army had already killed plenty of people at this point. So how are we to understand these ethical dilemmas? Well, these radical instances in Scripture point us to a bigger picture the picture of Christ. Like all scripture, we must read the passage Christologically. How does Rahab help us understand Jesus? Well, through her faith, Rahab stands in the place of Jesus. She becomes a little savior. Think about it. In Joshua 2, the people of God are stuck in the wilderness. They're in the desert. The water's running out. Their tents are getting worn out. They've been using them for 40 years. They're trying to get into the promised land. But there's one problem. The spies are, be, are about to be captured. So who stands in the middle between God's people going from the wilderness and into the promised land? It's Rahab. And who helps get the people of God from the wilderness into the promised land? It's Rahab. And who is the one who misleads the evil king, which ultimately leads to his downfall? It's Rahab. We know that Rahab is not the ultimate savior, And that Canaan is not the ultimate promised land. But through faith, Rahab reveals the ultimate savior to us. RBC, all of us are in a desert. 
And who stands between us and the promised land? It's Jesus Christ. And RBC, I hate to tell you this, but all of us are dopey spies. All of us are weary travelers and we're longing to get from the wilderness to the promised land. And who helps get us there? Jesus Christ. And RBC, all of us are battling common enemies. Sin, death, and the devil. And who is the one who misleads and conquers these foes? It's Jesus Christ. Rahab may act as a savior, but she points us and the entire world to the ultimate savior. In fact, Matthew tells us that she is the great-great-great-grandmother of our savior. She gives birth to the one who gets us into the promised land. So yes, we should try to live like Rahab and all other faithful Christians, not by copying their lies and their shortcomings, but by copying them as much as they copy Christ. Remember that all the examples in Hebrews 11 lead us to the ultimate example in Hebrews 12. Verse 1 reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is the true example, the founder and the perfecter of the faith and of our faith. To persevere in faith, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. For he is not only the example, founder, and perfecter, he is the object of our faith. He is the center of our faith. Jesus Christ is the center of the creeds. Jesus Christ is the center of scripture. And Jesus Christ is the center of the entire cosmos. But the big question for you to consider for your self-evaluation, is Jesus Christ the center of your life? If not, I'm afraid you will live like a planet that has fallen out of its orbit. But as the bright shining sun invites all of her planets to revolve around her, so Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness, shines brightly and invites all of humanity to revolve around him. If Christ is our center, we will become like Rahab and lead people from the desert into the promised land. Not because we are anything special, but because all who live in faith live in the life of Christ. And they live in him with wholeness, with Catholicity, wholly baptized into his death and wholly partakers of his resurrection and transfigured into his glorious body, which leads us to our sustaining virtue for next time, hope. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for all of the great examples you have given us of how to live a faithful life. We realize that we could never live up to any of their examples and certainly not up to the example of Jesus Christ. But we do pray, Lord, that you would forgive all of our faults and that you would help us to live by his faith and not our own, by his good works and not ours. We pray that you would fill us with his spirit, that we may go out and be Christ's hands and feet while we are on this earth. We pray that you would bless us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.